Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We are going to pick up in Proverbs 21, and we are in a section loosely subtitled, A Foolish Son Dealing with Fools and Foolishness. So, continuation of a very prominent, overarching theme. And we'll pick up, 18 is the new verse, we'll get a little bit of a running start, maybe around 12 would be good. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so just jumping back in at 12 to get a little bit of a running start. The righteous one, and as you hopefully see, it is capitalized in your Bible, observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. So obviously the righteous one here, we ought to think of as Christ. And we ought to think of Christ as the one who has mercy on the repentant, but the wicked, who are unrepentant in their wickedness, he will throw down to ruin. So we see then these two offices of Christ to throw down and to build up, to kill and to raise to life, and so on and so forth in view here. Let's go on to 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So again, to expect mercy from God means that we ourselves should be merciful. If we would expect God to be merciful to us or want God to be merciful to us, then we ought to show that mercy unto others. So you see a direct connection and a logic here that's present in the New Testament as well. To close one's ear to the poor is to close one's ear effectively to Christ. Because he locates himself in the least of these are brothers. And so if we close our ear to Christ, then Christ's ear is closed to us. So warning here in this proverb. And again, if I'm going superficially, so be it. We covered these some weeks ago. 14. A gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe, strong wrath. Again, a proverb that invites thought, invites meditation, because there's ways in which this is not good and ways in which it might possibly be baptized, so to speak. But I think we covered that thoroughly before. 15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So this again ties in with 12, especially, that the righteousness of God is not 
only a forgiveness of sins, but it's also a justice. And so when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. And of course, that's how Christ himself is received. Those who are repentant of their sins, those who acknowledge their sins and want a Savior, have one in Christ Jesus. He is a joy, but he's a terror to those who insist upon going their own way, insist upon evil, insist upon their opposition to him. Then he's a terror. And so all the ways of Christ are joy to us. His way of forgiveness is joy to us. His way of justice is joy to us. It's all-encompassing. So we can reflect then, I think, profitably by connecting 12 and 15. I mean, I'm not opposed to connecting the others, just very broadly. You have the righteous one here and the throwing down of the wicked to ruin. And then here, when justice is done, as it clearly is done, it's a joy to us. We shouldn't pity those who oppose Christ when Christ destroys them. And I think we spent some time looking at that last uh, class as well, because I like to always point out that in Revelation, when the wicked are meeting their final demise and are being cast out of the earth, so we're talking about the wicked man along with the wicked angels, the saints aren't weeping and lamenting and mourning, but doing the exact opposite. They're rejoicing that finally God's justice is being brought forth. Finally, that prayer, uh, thy will be done in heaven as it is on earth, or on earth as it is in heaven, rather. Sorry, still having a head cold here. But that that petition would finally be fulfilled so that just as Satan was cast out and his fallen angels cast out of heaven, so also they would be cast out of earth. And that day is not a day for weeping. That day is a day of great rejoicing. Yes? Oh, no, sorry. I thought someone was trying to get a word in edgewise. All right, so 15 and 12. Very good. 16, one who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. Very poignant, poetic imagery, but again, a very binary and mutually exclusive arrangement and description of reality. It's the nature of reality itself. There's no such thing as neutrality. To wander off the way, and of course this is described as the way of good sense, the way of God's sense, to wander from that way is to get lost. And that lostness doesn't, you know, land in some place that's like, well, okay, maybe a little less. No, that lostness goes only one place, and that's to the very assembly or church of the dead. So that narrow road, that narrow path would certainly be Christ riffing on that. And then, of course, he's saying of himself, I am that way. So strive to enter through the narrow door, the narrow door, the narrow way, same concepts biblically. Okay, 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Two positive parallels. And we can reflect on this in a 
very low-level earthly sense. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man because if you're constantly seeking pleasure and fulfilling your constant impulses, you're going to run out of money and provisions. And the second thought, much like the first, he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. So you're spending it on the finest of wines and the greatest of oils and so on and so forth. That's the theme, of course, love for mammon, as you just ratchet that up the up spiritually. The love for mammon is in view, and as Christ himself says, again, binary, mutually exclusive, you love God or you love mammon, you serve God or you serve mammon. Okay, 18, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the traitor for the upright, which is a very intriguing proverb. Think about it just at a very crass level. Okay? If you wanted to get back, if someone, let's say, captured a righteous man or captured an upright man and you wanted to get him back, um, it would be very easy for you to hand over a wicked man or a traitor in order to get him back. So to hand over a scoundrel to get one who is righteous. And that's probably the same sense, or the, I mean the base, very basic easy sense to grasp in this proverb, is that the wicked and the traitorous are simply means to an end, and that, that end is going to be the righteous or the upright. Now I suppose as we reflect on this, as we chew it over, as we mull it over, especially on account of the language of ransom, <clears throat> We could um, very easily see Christ here, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And so he is the the wicked in a sense and um, makes us who are wicked righteous. So he who is righteous made wicked that we who are wicked might be made righteous. Um, We could reflect on it likewise that he is the righteous. He's handed over for the sake of the wicked, and so on and so forth. And that's fine. I think this proverb invites that meditation and invites that even if you start playing fast and loose with the sense of it itself, it invites that kind of reflection, especially because all the scriptures speak of Christ. All right, well, before we get to an honorary one, then let's pause and see if you have any thoughts or anything you'd like to add. Okay, I guess, I guess everything's just crystal clear, which is wonderful. So, 19 then. It is better to live in a desert land or a wilderness than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Waka'as is angry, so um, uh, Midyanim is contentious. So a contentious or angry woman um, similar in idea to uh, verse 9, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome, a midyanim, a contentious wife. So as a man, how do you receive this? How do you think about it? 
I'm just kidding. <laughs> Put you on the spot, get you in big trouble. I mean, I think, I think men who have experienced this would shake their head in, in, in kind of agreement. They just wouldn't shake it too vigorously, lest they be seen. So then I think for women, again, as with all of the Proverbs that follow this theme, it's a realization of the domain that God has given you and in a sense of the power that God has given you. Because if you want to make um, your husband's life, your children's lives uh, miserable, that's within your purview. If you want to make the house a blessing and you want to be a blessing to your your husband and a blessing to your children so that your family unit can be a blessing to others that's within your power and so I think I think as women reflect on that those might be some of the thoughts that you have as opposed to just the negative Um, what then is a woman who is not contentious what does that look like what is a woman who is not angry what does that look like as as Christian women that's what you want to aspire toward And of course, then, I mean, you can certainly reflect on this, that men want to lead their homes in a Christ-like fashion, modeling uh, his leadership, I think both in his authority as well as in his humility, his power as well as in his forgiveness, and um, cultivate a home such that a woman doesn't need to be contentious or angry. So those are some thoughts. Maybe you have others. Hey, if you do, you're keeping them to yourself, and I get it. All right, well, I don't know. Um, I think that that's probably sufficient because we've meditated on this a number of times already. So 20, yes, 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. So here we see a positive connection between wisdom leading to profitability, and that seems to be fleshed out or specified in the second half of the proverb, whereas a foolish man devours it. Again, you see that lack of impulse control. Uh, it's the way we would describe it today. It's constantly, constantly, impulsively buying, spending, consuming. Uh, marks of foolishness, marks of spiritual disease, marks of uh, maybe even marks of self-medication. Attempts to self-medicate. What do they? What do they say sometimes? Have to go do a little therapeutic shopping. And what's a joke there actually has a at least a grain of truth, maybe more, in it. So, a foolish man is one who simply here in this proverb devours and devours and consumes and consumes. Interesting that the entire world here in the late West in which we live wants us to be consumers. They call us consumers. It's one of these things I think we should be sensitive to. It's like, you shouldn't call people Karens or allow yourself to be called a Karen. That's a racist insult, is what it is. I don't really believe in racism, but you may as well use it. Use it when you got it. But we, there's certain things that we shouldn't agree to. 
And we shouldn't agree to being called consumers. We shouldn't agree or identify as consumers. It's a demeaning, degrading, debasing thing to call yourself. You're not a consumer. Whether you consume or not, you're not a consumer. As if that's all you are. So a foolish man here just devours and devours and consumes and consumes and sees the world as such. My life is basically just to be comfortable and have pleasure and make myself more comfortable and make myself have more pleasure and that's it and then I die and that's the end. Uh, That's the life of a fool, biblically. So the opposite would be to be wise. Again, wise objectively in keeping with the will and word of God. And thus those precious things that you receive, the treasure and oil, are retained and used for special purpose. And they're valued and you're discriminant. And then I think that you can, of course, take that and move that up the chain if you want and think about what are the true treasures that you have as a Christian? What is the real precious treasure? What is the, what is the true oil? Because there I think you're going to find the greater gifts that God has given you. And especially those found in his word and in his kingdom and his son and in the communion of the saints, the whole family of God. These are the true and precious treasures and they're things that we cling to. Uh, whereas we might easily dispose of mere earthly treasures, we cling to those unto everlasting life. So certainly invite some meditation in that respect too, that what are the true precious treasures and oils of a wise man? Sir. Yeah. Hi, Pastor. Welcome back. Thanks. Um, We all know what wine is. Uh, That's easy. But the oil, what in their day, it it seemed to have many uses. Yeah. And there might have been different types of oil, Uh, olive oil, whale oil. Who knows? (laughs) But whatever you can squeeze hard enough has oil. Doesn't my my question is? Is pretty common. And what, wasn't it used almost for everything? I mean, mm-hmm. from light to giving light to, uh, or lighting a lamp yeah, to absolutely. cooking with maybe? or yeah, Absolutely. It, I mean, you've so. done a great job listing it all. Yeah. yeah um, they'd burn it for light. They'd cook with it. They'd, um, after you're done bathing in the river, you put it on oil, to seal yeah. yourself. It's like a bit of deodorant to that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they would impregnate the oils sometimes, um, if one was wealthy enough, with uh, spices. So as a literal ointment or cologne, um, it was used medicinally and would seal up the wounds. Um, used it under bandages. Wow. Remember the yeah. Good Samaritan who um, wraps up in bandages and then pours over uh, wine and oil. So you've got a medicinal use. Yeah, it's really just kind of viewed as almost a panacea. Just, hey, you know, just put some oil on it, right? Yeah. Yeah, but the flip side is if you don't have it, now all of a sudden everywhere you turn, you want it. So for the same cooking, lighting, medicine, yeah, uh, hygiene, whatever else. Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's, it's frequently listed as a blessing along with wine. Sometimes grain or bread is, is listed as well as one of those chief or fundamental blessings. Yep. I'm not sure if this fits, but when, I'm, when you're talking about oil, I'm thinking of the foolish virgin parable 
Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and then so what we learned there is that the oil is our knowledge of God's word, and it's there for us when we need it or when troubles come. Does that fit here? And how does the fool devour that? Like he never really stored up God's word, or is that taking it too far? Um, no, I think it's a fine meditation. Yeah, it's a f- and it's a fine way of reading the Proverbs in light of the other scriptures and considering it and chewing it, swallowing it, digesting it, etc. Um, right, so the, in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the most important thing is they start out wise or foolish, and then they show forth their wisdom or their foolishness by what they do or don't do. So the linchpin of that parable, of course, is that we be ready for the coming of the bridegroom who comes at an unexpected hour. He's delayed. Everybody falls asleep. He comes. It's unexpected. Only half the virgins are ready. The other half aren't. It's the wise who are ready. They have the oil. Now, the oil is whatever the preacher needs it to be for his congregation. No, I'm just teasing. But that, is, that actually isn't too far off when you look at the history of interpretation and preaching. You'll find that the oil is sometimes faith, is sometimes good works, is sometimes uh, giving to the poor, depending on who's preaching. But what that evidence is, is that the bringing of the oil is symptomatic of them being wise. And that, re- and that resolves itself in their being ready when the Lord comes. That's an important thing when you look at the parables of Jesus in Matthew 25. This is one of them. To pay attention uh, to the order. Because you're told from the outset that there's wise and foolish virgins and then you watch what they do. In the same way, the parable that Jesus tells of the sheep and the goats you're told from the outset that the sh- there's sheep and there's goats and they're separated. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left. And then everything flows from that reality. So those who are wise are the- those who have faith in Christ. Those who are sheep are those who have faith in Christ. And then what flows forth from that faith, from that wisdom, is oil. From that faith, from the sheep, are the good works. Um, whatever you have done to the least of these my brothers, my fellow Christians, you have done unto me. Etc. Okay, anything else we want to touch on with this uh, proverb or any of the others we've hit on? Okay, we'll go on then. 21. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. So there is a pursuit. Of righteousness. Now, do you find the accusation from God that you've been self-righteous in pursuing righteousness? No. You find the commendation of God. You find that he bestows life, righteousness, and honor. It's like when Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. This is clearly a fruit of faith, a fruit of knowing who Christ is. What then do you do? Once you know who Christ is and what he's done for you, once you're born through the waters of holy baptism into his image, and just as he is the capital S son, you are now a small S son of the Father, how then ought you to live? What is the summum bonum? What is the greatest good of your life? What is that which you pursue? And Christ says very plainly, pursue, strive for, seek after, 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Very similar to this here. And this beautiful promise, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. So this is the path we're on, and it is a path of activity. Paul talks about it as a race. So takes that path or that way motif and makes it a a matter of, of racing and running with purpose. And I think that accords very well with the sentiment of this proverb, that righteousness is not something that... I mean, it falls into your lap, nor, nor is kindness. These are things to be pursued, to be hunted down, to be tracked. Okay, well, maybe that's sufficient. 22, a wise man scales the city of the mighty... And brings down the stronghold in which they trust. A fascinating proverb and deceptively simple. Of course, if you've got the wicked here, presumably, and they're wicked because they're not trusting in God, but they're trusting in the, their own might and in their city, the city of the mighty, and the stronghold in which they trust. So clearly not a mighty fortress is our God, but a mighty fortress is our fortress. Kind of earthly idiocy and shenanigan. So a wise man then finds that and doesn't despair, but scales the city. So the idea here is like climbs the wall of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So penetrates the defenses and brings it down to nothing. Um, One famous example of this, uh, and a biblical miracle, of course, is Jericho. Jericho is this impenetrable fortress city, and not so impenetrable for the righteous who listen to the Lord. And again, with the blast of trumpets and with the shout of celebration, Um, The walls of Jericho are brought down, and the mighty city, the stronghold in which they trusted, uh, was but rubble. So, again, intriguing because as you mold this over, you might find all kinds of applications. And you might find all kinds of applications about the daunting task that is before us in the West as we look at uh, a Western culture that is rejecting Christ and has been rejecting him for some decades, probably even centuries, and it looks as though it, it's a fortress that cannot be, uh, cannot be conquered. How can we be wise unto salvation? How can be, we be wise according to God's word and scale the city of the mighty and, and bring it down that our people might once again trust in Christ and not in their own strength, not in that which their hands have made? Okay, well, we could go on, but let's not. 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Ah, isn't that true? You can, you can be some really stupid places. As long as you keep your mouth shut, you'll probably be okay. Although, don't go to stupid places. But you can be in very normal, very good, very upright, very... Uh, fine.
places and your mouth can get you into big trouble, can't it? We're all coming off of uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas breaks where you're back at at home. Anyone want to tell on themselves? (laughs) Uh, It's good to keep your mouth shut in many, many places. And that's, of course, one of, the, one of the teachings of Proverbs, is to be slow to speak, to be careful with our tongues. <clears throat> and here, again, it's put positive. Whoever keeps his mouth... So the image here is that the mouth um, and his tongue are constantly... It's, it's almost like, it's like two horses that want to run out of the gate. And you want to keep them, you want to rein them in, and you want to direct them to good purposes. But this idea that the tongue, the mouth are somehow like neutral or in a position of stasis just isn't true. Your mouth wants to run away with you. Your tongue wants to gallop around and do all sorts of stupid stuff. Okay? You've got to rein them in and keep them and use them to good purposes. That's the view here. Remember, James talks this way about the, about the tongue being um, like a little flame, like a little tiny, you know, that lights the whole forest on fire. So there's an activity of the mouth and a danger of the mouth. You know, in the same way you might go to a dry forest and be really, really careful with your fire and really keep it. Um, Same thing with your mouth. uh, Same thing with your tongue. That's the same sentiment of this proverb. Yeah, please. So when I was uh, raised, I was taught, as many of us were, don't discuss religion and politics, right? Mm, yeah. And um, those are the two things I love to talk about. Yeah, well, good for you. It's like I always, when people say that, I always think of the animals in Narnia who are told by the White Witch never to mention the name of Aslan. Yes. Yeah, that's the same thing. Never talk about anything important, yeah, but, lest you accidentally say Jesus. But you run the risk of irritating people. Mm, yeah. I run that risk daily. <laughs> Over well, all kinds of things. And yeah, and I mean, okay, so to, to kind of push the other direction briefly, some people need to be irritated. And we can pursue all kinds of uh, peace and quiet that is just a false peace and a false quiet. And we can even, to put it in an extreme, hold our lips shut unto someone's damnation. So we should be willing to disturb the peace for the sake of Christ the true king of peace, we realize that that other peace that was being kept is a kind of false peace. So, yeah, insofar as you are able, insofar as it is within your power, be at peace with all people. And that's just the general spirit that we go out, as Christians, we don't go out looking to pick a fight. But we shouldn't be afraid to speak, even if that is offensive to others or scandalizes others. And Christ himself would be our example, wouldn't he? He speaks in many places where he offends others, and he doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. Or he scandalizes others, and he doesn't say, pardon me, I, I should have kept, kept track of my lips here in polite company. No, we need to be bold to speak. Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth, and if people don't love it, that's their problem answer. All right. <laughs> Pastor, what, what struck me about this passage is the second half. Uh, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. 
So the idea, I mean, we all have the idea, okay, you know, if you, in the wrong situation, if you don't guard your mouth, you'll get beat up, right? But this mm-hmm. is actually saying, it seems to me something deeper, that mm-hmm. it's not just because we don't want to face, right, the, the censure of others, but because it hurts ourselves to, to speak to others in a certain way. Mm, okay. You know, that somehow it, it uh, maybe hurts our integrity or our, our you know, if you, if you tell lies, you, you tend to come to believe them. Mm-hmm. Yes, like that's that. a great point. That's a great point. I really like that. Thank you for that insight. Yes, um, it's something that we've seen repeated in the Proverbs before. It's a strange thing to wrap your mind around, I think. But as you speak, um, the pro- there are Proverbs that will refer to that as like the fruit of your lips. And part of the reason why it'll refer to it as that is because you're going to eat those words. So you need to make sure they're wholesome and good. Um, what comes out of your mouth simultaneously in a, in a spiritual, in a real way, goes back into a man. And so the more you speak negative, lo and behold, the more negative you are. Let's just give a very low-level example there, right? So, um, the, yeah. So how you speak patterns your thoughts and patterns your outlook, your outlook on life and patterns your behavior. So be really careful. I mean, all of these are just commonly observable. So be really careful how you speak. Um, because yeah, it's going to affect you to say nothing of others, like you in terms of your soul, not just your circumstances. seems to me there was someone who said, it's not that which goes into a man's yeah, mouth, yeah. but that which comes out, which <laughs> yeah, defiles exactly. him. Exactly. Someone said that. Yeah, and I mean, and diagnostic, of course, too, because our problem with our mouths is not just a problem with our mouths, but a problem with our heart. So um, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which that's pretty indicting, especially if you find yourself saying nasty, crude, uh, unchristian things. You've got to recognize that, like, hey, that's symptomatic of something deeper and going on in my heart. I should confess my sins, whatever they may be. I should receive that absolution, and I should make a clean start and a new start in that pursuit of righteousness um, and that pursuit of kindness. Okay, please. I had just a a quick follow-up to Dale and uh, Alice. I've been wondering for a while if uh, what you don't say sometimes also could be bearing false witness. Absolutely. As well as what you do say. And then I also wondered about, if you could tell us in the original Hebrew, if guard or keep your tongue, might Alice be guarding and keeping her tongue when she speaks sometimes as well as holding it back? Mm, yeah, sure. Like like steering or directing that sense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that we need the the Hebrew per se there because I think that that's true. I think that's true. And I was trying to get at that with the analogy of the of the horse like with bit and bridle, you know, you're going to steer it, not just restrain it. Use it to good purpose. Okay, that was the second part. I'm still like only 80% at capacity. I've I had a cold for the past uh, whatever. As soon as I as soon as I left for vacation, I got sick. As soon as about the time I got on a plane to get back, I was feeling better. So, but I'm still got this terrible brain fog. So I lost the first part of what you said. Do you, do you mind repeating it? Well, if you if you recall. <laughs> I was just asking if sometimes you can bear false witness by not saying something as mm. well as by saying something. Yeah, a, a, good, a good point there too as well. To confess God before 
to confess Christ before men is, has this beautiful promise attached that Christ will confess us before the Father. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, as we might have many opportunities to confess Christ and uh, exclaim his excellency and his glory, we have this wonderful promise by God's pure grace in Christ that he will speak well of us before the Father, and that there's a kind of symmetry there. So, I think that that should also give us a sense of fearlessness and, and childlike simplicity of purpose. Well, Christ says it. Of course it's right. Of course it's good. Why would I think otherwise? Oh, men hate it? Well, they hated him too. Oh, why, would I, why would I get rankled about that? Why would I think, oh, what was me? Men hate me. Well, they hated Christ who is greater than me. So, um, yeah, get the message straight. Get the message out. Um, and don't worry about uh, the ill effects that come on account of that. Your commendation is from Christ before the throne of your father. Ultimately, your commendation is from God himself. Okay, uh, anything else we want to touch on here? Okay, so then on to 22, or sorry, 23, or sorry, 24. (laughs) Get there one of these days. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. So arrogance or pride, I mean, virtually always seen as this root sin. And scoffing is a kind of intimate fruit of that sin. So intimate that you can simply find an arrogant person filled with arrogance and pride, arrogant pride, and label him a scoffer. So... He views his own wisdom as supreme. That's really at the heart of what a scoffer is. A righteous person or one who has good sense, the antithesis of a scoffer, is one who listens to the word of the Lord and conforms himself to that word, who humbles himself and says, well, what I think is probably wrong. What does God think? Okay, that's now what I think. (laughs) That's the exercise of having good sense. It's the exercise of not being a scoffer. What God says is true even if I don't understand it. I'll believe first and then I'll seek to understand. That's the antithesis of a scoffer. So a scoffer says, um, what do I think? That's God. That's divine. What does my little tiny infinitesimally small reason conjure up? Or what boundaries does it set in place? That's the truth. Uh, Only an arrogant and proud person could think such things. And of course you can see the arrogance and pride and scoffing. In specific when people scoff against God's word. That's just plain as day. And people scoff and mock and reject and oh that's absurd. Oh that, I mean since we're really near yet on Christmas we're just celebrating and observing Epiphany today. With the birth of Christ. I mean, those who reject Christ absolutely scoff at the idea that God has become man in the flesh of our Savior Jesus. It's it's untenable to fallen human reason. And so they scoff at it. They make fun of it. There's crass jokes. um, There's all kinds of mockery and denial. That kind of scoffing comes from an arrogance and a pride that says, I, 
poor little miserable human being who has to sit on a john, has to go to bed lest I die, I know more than the Almighty. And my, and my reason is uh, greater than his, and my wisdom greater than his. You can see the antidote to this, uh, just so beautifully portrayed by St. Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, where he talks about the foolishness of God being wiser than the wisdom of man, and the weakness of God in Christ Jesus being stronger than the power and strength of man. So God is having his fun and having his way with the proud and arrogant who think themselves so wise and so strong by destroying them with the weakness and foolishness of Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, Christ risen. That's the great fun of the victory of God is it's not like, ooh, that was a close one. You know, when God decides it's time to take out the devil, this great big dragon, God's like, okay, how about if I... uh, Send my son as a little drooling newborn baby in diapers. That'll do. There's my champion. There's the one who's going to beat you. God knows how to deliver an insult. And part of the joy of that is by clinging to the foolishness of his word and the weakness of his word, the foolishness and weakness of of his cross. We're triumphing over the quote-unquote wise and strong of this world. It's part of the deliciousness, part of the joy. It's like you just believe that there's a six-day creation because the Bible tells you that there's a six-day creation. Good, you win. You're, you end up in this, at, on the same podium with the same laurel, with the same praise and commendation as the person who can defend that tooth and nail against all manner of experts and PhDs and biologists. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in this sense whether you know how to defend it all or whether you just cling to the word itself, you end up in the same place, victorious. Because the foolishness of God will always destroy the wisdom of this world. And if you start seeing your life through that lens and start seeing all the information that you receive through that filter, life becomes a lot less stressful and a lot more fun. Because you go, "Mm, God said it, I think I'm going to stick with that. How about, how about no? How about no, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Well, we've got all this, trust the science, bro. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't because A, the science itself is never trustworthy because the people doing the science are fallen human beings. The people doing the science, quote unquote, have their own biases and very frequently doing the science way transgresses the bounds of what, the, of what quote unquote science truly is, the scientific method, way transgresses those bounds and claims to know all kinds of things that the scientific method cannot tell you while still claiming the imprimatur of science. No, pardon me, no. Uh, I don't, I don't need to trust your quote-unquote science, which is no science at all, um, especially not when I have the Word of God. So, A, you have an untrustworthy foundation, you have a sinking sand, and I have the Word of God, which is a firm rock upon which I can build my house. And when the rains of the last and floods of the last judgment come, anyone who's built their house upon the rock of God's Word is going to stand unscathed. So, I invite you to just a really simplistic belief in God's Word. You're going to win. You're going to win. What are you worried about? The scorn of people who hate Christ? Let them scorn you. They scorn him. Doesn't mean you lose. It means you win. It means you're on the winning side. 
So I'll leave you with that encouragement that um, to bind yourself to the foolishness and weakness of God in Christ Jesus and the revelation of his word is really truly the greatest wisdom and the greatest power. And there's a humility there because you're saying it's not what I think. It's what he thinks. It's what he said. Good enough. All right. How about on to 25? And uh, 26, it looks like, is very connected to 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. All right, well, a ton of different directions we could go with this, a ton of different meditations we can have. Uh, desire itself isn't a bad thing. God desired to make the world, and he made it. God desired to send his son to be our savior, and he did. Desire isn't a bad thing. There's ordered desire and disordered desire. And it's the disordered desire. What's the desire of the sluggard? To slug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be lazy. That's the desire. And man was not made to do nothing. We just weren't. You can take it from the designer. So when we do nothing, we become nothing. When we act or desire as to be as though we were dead, I just want to lay in bed all the time, well, it kills you. And as if we needed this, but there are statistics that show this. Remember my warning against retirement. So, retirement is simply diverting your attention elsewhere and your energies elsewhere. That's what retirement is. Retire when you die. Because if you retire in the sense of, okay, I'm done working. I'm just now, now to the easy chair. You're going to die. And you have statistics or you have God's word. Either one can prove it to you. You need to be desiring the right thing and the good thing and pursuing that. So that's sumum bonum, that ultimate good, which is Christ and his kingdom and uh, flourishing that kingdom here. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. Like, what's the point of life? Well, Christ has died for you, so just bask in his forgiveness while you do nothing. No! That's a satanic perversion and just complete disaster of, of a worldview. Um, Christ has died for you. You are forgiven. Start living. Start really living. Not for yourself, but pursuing that sumum bonum. Pursuing his kingdom here on earth. That's, I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're left here. If God wanted us all up into heaven, he'd just take us all up into heaven. Done. Why does he have us down here? Well, there's many reasons, and some of them for our own good, for our own development, for the good of others, but especially for the furtherance of his kingdom. That's why we're here. That's why we're exiled. That's why we long to go home, but not yet. And we shouldn't despair. We should get busy. So having properly ordered desire then is in the backdrop of this by way of antithesis. The desire of the sluggard kills him. His hands refuse to labor. You can think of that just very concretely that a super lazy guy is going to starve to death. Unless he lives in America maybe, but in any normal society that's what happens. And then all day long he craves and craves. So you have a disordered craving, a disordered desire that's innate to the, to the fallen nature. 
But the righteous gives. So does he crave? Does he seek to consume? To have for his own? No, he's already full. And I would suggest he's righteous because he's filled with the righteous one, with Christ himself. So he's full, and thus he can give. He doesn't crave or desire, but he gives and does not hold back. What he desires is the pursuit of righteousness. I mean, taking it back to Proverbs 21, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what a new heart is with its new impulses and new desires. I'm pretty much paraphrasing the book of Concord here. But it's now a pursuit of righteousness and kindness. It's a pursuit of, maybe it is even a pursuit of some prophet and uh, earthly gain, but not for oneself, that one might have something to distribute to others who are in need. It's a whole reordering and reorientation of one's life goals and purposes in Christ, because we're not here to serve ourselves, to desire disorderly, to crave, but to desire that which Christ desires, and to give and not hold back. Okay, so some thoughts and and riffing there on 25 and 26. And maybe that's as good a place as any to call it a day. The Lord be with you.